Acts 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance, and I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to meet from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. The six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then... God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Nice to be here, although also very sobering and sad. Um, we're all praying for Kiernan, our brother, that he can get the rest he needs and the healing he deserves. And so I want to thank Jeff, particularly for doing such work uh, in Kiernan's absence and really picking up so much of the work that needs to be done, but I'm glad to be here just uh, to help out. And I'd like to lead us for a moment in prayer uh, for Kiernan. Father, you know our brother, and we love him. And we ask now that you would be with him, that you heal him and refresh him and renew him. Lord, we love him. We long to see him back here leading and shepherding and preaching. And so we ask now for your favor to be upon him, for your healing hand to touch and anoint him, and for your refreshing hand uh, to renew him. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series on the book of Acts, and we are in that part 
of the book of Acts where it shifts from the gospel being primarily in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to moving out into the whole world. Two stories begin this section. Last week, the story of the conversion of Saul to Paul. And then this week, the story of Cornelius, the forerunner, the Gentile who is a harbinger of the future of Christianity because he represents the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the world. Both of these stories, both the Saul to Paul story and this Cornelius to Christian story, are filled with the miraculous power of God. Acts tells us the story in more detail. This is Peter recounting it. It says that Peter was in Joppa, which is a modern-day Tel Aviv. He received a vision, food coming down, God speaking to him, saying, kill and eat. The food that Peter saw in the vision, however, included unclean animals from an Old Testament perspective, so he resisted. But God said what God has made clean is clean. <laughs> so go do it. God did it three times in that vision. And Peter finally overcame his resistance, listened to God, went out, met some people who were from Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius had sent them because Cornelius had seen a vision. Peter followed them back to Cornelius's place. Cornelius had gathered a group of people. They heard the gospel. They came to faith. The Holy Spirit came upon them in power. They spoke in tongues. Wonderful snapshots of the power of God unleashed for the purposes of God, which is that the world would know about the grace of God in Jesus. Now here in Acts 11, we see the aftermath. And in this passage, some things come to the fore that we need to reflect upon deeply. Because here, we encounter a potential obstacle to the proper spread of the gospel. And that obstacle is prejudice. Here in this passage, as Peter explains these miraculous events to a skeptical, indeed prejudiced Jewish Christian audience, we see at least two things. We see the power of prejudice, and then we see the power of grace. The power of prejudice and the power of grace. Firstly, let's look at the power of prejudice. We, we pick up this story. He's visited Cornelius. He's returned, and word has leaked out that Peter has been meeting with Gentiles and that they are converting to Christianity. This is confirmation to Peter and to the apostles that the gospel is to move beyond Jewish people to the non-Jewish world. And yet a whole group of Christians, being Jewish, disagreed with the whole trajectory of where the disciples were going. They criticized him because he was eating with non-Jews. They officially confront him on it because to, to them, this is a scandalous public sin. Gentiles to them are unclean. Un they eat unclean foods. Therefore, they are unworthy of the scope of God's saving grace. What are they doing? To our modern ears, it's simple. They're being racist. And indeed, that is what is going on. They are being ethnically motivated in their prejudice. It shocks our ears that such prejudice exists, although we know historically it happened all the time. But Christians having this prejudice, we feel it's wrong, and we are right to do so. But let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. Though this kind of prejudice may not be ours, many kinds of prejudice are ours, are they not? There are distinctions that we make. There is derision that we feel. There are decisions that we carry out that show us to be within the reach 
and under the power of prejudice ourselves. A few years ago, Ben Jolliffe preached at a similar school setting. It was Rosedale School of the Arts when we were meeting there, the downtown site. Doug's brother, Doug Ford's brother, Rob, was the mayor. And Ben got up, our intern, and said to the downtown congregation, now some of you here simply hate Rob Ford. And you wouldn't be caught dead being in the same room with him. And you need to repent of that. And the room was deadly silent. If I today exchanged the word Rob for Doug and said the same thing into this room, how silent would we be? I got a distressed email from a former congregant a couple years ago. They'd moved to the United States. They asked for a recommendation for a church in the city they'd moved to. The church was highly rated. I'd heard of and knew somewhat slightly the pastor. And we were told by everyone it was somewhat similar to Grace Toronto. So I recommended it to them. Except when this couple walked in on the very first Sunday, they saw someone with a red hat on. M-A-G-A. They turned around and they walked out. And to be honest, I might have done the same thing. Because prejudice abides in me. And prejudice is waiting to be formed in you. Prejudice chokes out the power of the gospel to go to the world. God hates it in all of its forms. But too often, as we're about to see, we don't hate it. Because there's a power in prejudice that should haunt us and should humble us. So let's take a deep and deepening dive into this issue of the power of prejudice. Firstly, I want to s us to see that the power of prejudice is obviously to impede the power of the gospel. What is obvious from this text is that many Christians are confronting Peter because they're not willing to share Jesus with people who are not Jewish. They're not even willing to meet with them. You see, to, to have table fellowship with someone, to eat with people at that time was the way you befriended them. They thought the Gentiles were beneath this message of Jesus. As a result, until the Holy Spirit intervened with a miraculous series of visions and words, one, one vision to Peter, one to Cornelius, and specific prompts to them, there was little to no gospel witness outside of sharing with Jewish people. The good news of Jesus was being kept to a tiny group of people in a tiny corner of the world. Prejudice was stopping the gospel from going where it was called to be, to the world. Later, if you read the book of Galatians, you will find out that Peter, who here is the champion for bringing the gospel to non-Jewish people, Peter himself will revert to stopping eating with Gentiles, and Paul has to publicly call him out on it, saying, Peter, what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. Men and women, prejudice is an enemy of gospel witness. Prejudice of any kind is a denial of the gospel and an impediment to it. We're Canadian. This is tragically evident in our nation, in our day. The residential school scandal has shone a bright light on the power of prejudice to pervert gospel witness, poison and ruin lives, rip families asunder, break cultural bonds down, result in abuse and even murder. The ability in our present day for the gospel to be accepted in our present culture has been massively diminished. 
by that legacy. I do not blame our culture for its horror or its mistrust. The prejudice of people who called themselves Christians has dissolved trust in the Christ who we claim to follow. Part of the power of prejudice seen in this passage is how it impedes gospel witness to others. But if prejudice is so obviously wrong, so obviously anti-gospel, why then, men and women, do we battle it so frequently? Why does it have such staying power in our hearts? So now I want us to go a little deeper and look to the internal powers of prejudice to go deep into our souls and minds. So secondly, I want to look at the power of prejudice to distort our perspective, not only to impede our witness, which is obvious. Look at how it distorts perspective here. Peter is being challenged for, for eating with non-Jewish people. Well, why are these Jewish Christians saying this? Are they crazy? No. They've taken something that they know and interpret it to do something they want to do, which is express prejudice. What is it that they know that they're distorting? This is what they know. In the Old Testament, there were regulations about not eating unclean foods. Leviticus 15, verse 3, God says, You shall keep the people of Israel separate from uncleanness, lest they die in uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. There's a holiness that the people of God are to show, particularly when they go to worship. And that holiness is given some definition. A little later on in Leviticus 20, it says this, part of how to stay clean. Verse 25, you will therefore separate clean beast from the unclean, unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by eating the bird or the beast or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. Now, why did God give these restrictions, these eating restrictions? We're not completely clear, but one thing we do know from the rest of the Old Testament, God wanted a holy people, but by holy, what I mean is the primary definition of holy in the Bible, that is set apart by God for a distinctive purpose. Set apart. You see, the people of Israel were to be God's light to the nations. They were to display his grace, his love, and his beauty to the world. God restrictions were for God's recognition by the nations that a nation knew the true God and that nation could be easily distinguished. They weren't cutting their beards. They had funny tassels on their clothes. They ate different foods. These were sign markers for people to know where to go to hear about the God they needed to hear about. And those foods were banned but the foods that were banned were eaten by other people. And so now you see the distortion of perspective. The Jews had taken the command for them to be holy and set apart and distinguishable by not eating certain foods and turned it into derision of others who did eat those foods. Jewish people, rabbinical interpreters, Jewish leaders had turned a food restriction into a form of ethnic separation and superiority. They'd interpreted the food restrictions to ethnic separation. Now remember the biblical purpose for the people of Israel. Genesis 26, 4. Abraham is told this. 
I will make a great nation of you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There it is. You are to be the place and the people where the grace of the God is shown to the world. They had repudiated the call of God to be a blessing to the nations and turned it into an elitism and prejudice against those very nations. They had done the opposite of what God wanted, and they had claimed his commands as the reason why they were doing. That is a distortion of the highest order. Now, this is no surprise to those of us who understand the gospel because we know from Scripture that the heart according to Jeremiah 17, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, we can do this. Not just them. We do it too. Why? Because our hearts are proud. We want to find reasons, men and women, to be better than other people. We're filled with pride. C.S. Lewis, former professor of ancient literature at Cambridge and Oxford, said this, pride is competitive in its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I am a proud person, then as long as there is one person in the whole world more powerful, richer, or cleverer than I am, they are my rival and my enemy. Pride drives us to justify ourselves to make ourselves to be right in our beliefs, to elevate ourselves above others. It is a central breeding ground for prejudice, and we all have it. Pride distorts our perspective. Prejudice uses the vehicle of pride to wiggle into our hearts to make evil look good. If you are familiar at all with the history of racism in the United States, you may know the story of Chicago's real estate practices post-World War II. Post-World War II, when there was an economic boom going on in Chicago, mortgage companies decided that they were going to classify neighborhoods. They were going to classify them by their ability to pay mortgages back. And so they began to notice that in certain, what we would call postal codes, mortgages were defaulting more. So they would draw red lines around those neighborhoods and those subdivisions. Guess which race inhabited those neighborhoods? Correct. And so what happened was they started excluding those neighborhoods from getting mortgages. The black community in Chicago could not get a regular mortgage for the life of them. So you know what happened? The real estate and the legislature both the industry and the politicians allowed a new kind of mortgage to come up, a predatory mortgage run by white entrepreneurs that was no mortgage at all. It was a mortgage, or so it seemed by its verbiage, that allowed you to have ownership in the home, but the rates were much higher. What you didn't know if you were signing it is the legalese was so complicated that what it said was if you default on one payment, you can be evicted with no notice, and you never had ownership rights over that house. You were only ever a tenant. Prejudice distorts our perspective 
It uses our pride to justify and make moral and ethical what is wrong and evil. Prejudice impedes the gospel. Prejudice distorts perspective. Finally, prejudice resides in the deepest corners of our hearts. Look what Peter says to these people. And think about this for a minute. He had a vision of food coming down. He had a voice saying, kill and eat. He refused that voice saying, no, I don't eat unclean foods. And God has to rebuke him and say, what I have made clean, do not consider unclean. This happens three times, men and women. This vision comes down. Then Peter receives a prompting from the Spirit to go with three men. Then when he arrives with these three men to Cornelius, he finds out another vision has been given to that group of people. Finally, when he speaks the gospel, they all convert, and the Holy Spirit comes down in great power, and they speak in tongues. Men and women, how many miraculous signs does God have to show this man before he can let go of his prejudice? How about you? And how about me? How many times? And in how many ways does does God need to approach us before we let go of ours? And why is it so hard? Here's part of the reason why. Stephen Hayes is a psychologist. He uh, is part of a research lab that studied various types of prejudice, gender prejudice, racial prejudice, economic prejudice, casteism, skinism. And he found a common root. I quote him now. We found that all forms of prejudice can be largely explained by what's called authoritarian distancing. The belief that we are different from some group of others. And because they are different, they present a threat to what we need to control. Listen to that summary. Two things jump out. The idea that people are other from us, alienation, and the longing and the need to control and the fear of losing control and other. Men and women, these point to two of the most fundamental drives in our humanity, in our soul and our psyche, the drive to be accepted, understood, and loved, not othered, and the desire to be safe that drives us to want control. And the gospel says we all have both of those drives. The gospel tells us that since the dawn of humanity and the defiance of Adam and Eve, deeply embedded in human nature is the desire to control our environment. That is the point of Genesis 3 and the beginning story of humanity. We want to wrest control from God because we think that self-rule, that we can run our lives better than he can. So we don't want to obey his rule. We want to chart our own course. We want to flourish, and we think we can do it better. Control. We have what Thomas Nagel, New York University professor of philosophy and law, calls a cosmic authority problem. We don't want to be under God's rule. Listen to Nagel in his book, The Last Word. I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's this. I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem I have is not a rare condition. He's right. The gospel says we all have that condition. 
Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Romans 3. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We have all turned aside. You see, we all want control. But that sinful desire for self-control has cosmic, spiritual, relational consequences. It others us from God. It separates us from the one being we were made for, the one relationship we were created for. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That sense of otherness is deeply embedded within us because we have defied God. We know he's in control. We fear what he will do with that control because he's a judge and he has a settled opposition to our independence and our sinful and selfish ways. So we have this fear of other deeply rooted in our alienation from God. But we also have this vulnerable fear of loss of control because we feel there could be others like us who might want to abuse us, manipulate us, or hurt us. Anyone is, who is different from us can present a friend to us. You know why? Because we know deep in our hearts that they're just as selfish as we are, that they're just as sinful as we are, that their hearts can be tempted to abuse, to oppress, that they're just as self-centered as we can be. They, in the end, cannot be fully trusted to have our best, our good, as their deepest desires and motives, so we feel unsafe. Feeling alienated and unsafe. These two identity feelings feed and drive prejudice. And this is the paradox and the power of prejudice, men and women. It's not easily unseated from our hearts because it gets fuel from our deepest drives and longings. The solution to prejudice must be as deep as the longings that give it fuel. And that's where our second point comes in, the power of grace. Because God intervenes. God, the God who has already forgiven Peter of his own treachery against Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus three times at that fire, now speaks to Peter and de- through his spirit and declares all foods to be clean. The time in history when the Jewish people represented God and his grace is over. The time in history when God's people are marked by not shaving their beards, not wearing tassels, and not eating clean food, unclean foods has come. The time has come for anyone who believes in Jesus to be God's people. There are not outside markers anymore. All foods are clean. All peoples are clean because the gospel is to go to all. What God has made clean, do not call common. Better translation, do not call unclean. And the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of Jesus, repeats this vision three times and then leads Peter to the house of an unclean Gentile. And there he sees the spirit of Jesus wash over all of them. He sees them made clean. Because Jesus wants Peter to see whom God has made clean. Do not call unclean. God says in the vision he's doing it for the food, but God is saying to Peter, I'm doing that for the people that you connect to the food. 
because men and women, you and I are all unclean before God. We are all sinners, and the wages of sin, says Romans 6, is death. At the deepest level, we're hungry for control. We feel othered by God himself. That combination fuels prejudice. We know God's there. We're nervous about God. We, we know his righteous judgment hangs over us. So the preconditions from prejudice deeply embedded in every human being, but they're swept aside by the power of grace. God's grace sweeps away Peter's objection. The vision comes three times. How many days did Jesus stay in death? Three days. Interesting number. A voice from heaven, a command to eat, the assurance that all foods are clean, the appearance of the men, the coming down of the spirit, they are all incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is ending any doubt in our minds about who the gospel goes to. It's to all of us. As Peter knows, and as he explains, the animals in these visions are a symbol for the people they represent because God's heart is to make all kinds of people clean. More than that, to make all kinds of people safe in his eyes as his beloved children. That's what the gospel is. That is why Jesus came. Let me finish that passage that I started for you from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Men and women, the gospel says that God laid the uncleanness of you and me, of our sin and our wrong on Jesus. At the cross, he took the spiritual debt that we owe God that alienates and others us from God, the debt we have for our autonomous controlling, we know better attitude, and he bore its guilt for us. Romans 5 God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did this out of love for us because he loves us and never wants us to be parted from him. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark Chapter 10, Jesus did this for you and for me. He knows your deepest longings. He knows your deepest needs. He knows our deepest sin. And he walks into the depth of it, into the very depths of our psyche and soul. And he says, be clean. And we are. Because the payment, the debt, the dirt, the guilt has been extinguished by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Ransoms you from being unclean. He cleanses you from being unholy. And he makes us the beloved children of this holy, gracious God. He unites us to himself and therefore to every other person. Why? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How can you be other when at the most fundamental way we are all the same? We are all sinners. You see, grace frees us from alienation from God and unites us to God by forgiveness. Grace humbles us from our pride and thinking we're better than others by reminding us of our commonality in our selfishness and our sin. And grace frees us from the need to be in control because the God of the universe who's in control of all things is our Father. He has our back. He has our front. He has our everything. He has us because we're his kids.
these three foundations, these three fountains that fill the pool of prejudice, control, pride, and fear of being othered. They are settled. They are solved. They are extinguished by Jesus. Because grace says there are no special people. There are no better people. There are no different people. There are only one kind of people. Sinners. And there's only one thing we bring to God, and it's the same thing we all bring to God. It's our sin. And he takes our sin, and he has exchanged for it his grace, his forgiveness, and his love. He turns from being our feared other to being our beloved father. He protects, he leads, he guides us, he brings us home, and he frees us. He frees us by his gracious power from prejudice. Two quick applications, men and women. First this, let God see your heart. Let God see your heart. You see it, but you don't always see it well. He sees it really well, but wants you to look at it with him so that you can see it rightly and admit to him your prejudices. Who or what can you not stand being seen in a room with? Look deep into yourself. Bring that to him. Confess it to him. Let God see your heart. And secondly, let God free your heart. Ask for forgiveness and allow the power of God to make you as unclean as anybody else, cleaner than anyone who's ever been except Jesus. As clean as God, because all your sins are wiped away. And now be free to look around and see the world differently. Grace frees you from the power of prejudice. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you. I pray you'd let us see our hearts. And we pray that we'd let you free our hearts that we may make no impediments to the gospel, that we may not allow our hearts to be filled with superiority, that we may not allow ourselves to justify things by the way we interpret things, but that we may see you clearly, see your grace fully, and let it free us deeply, we pray in Christ's name.